Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. It's a podcast from Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. We have the opportunity to have a dear, trusted faculty colleague with us who's done some groundbreaking research on the whole notion of spirituality and how best to pursue spirituality in a way that's actually transformative and not just sort of repeating what we've been doing in the past. Uh, Professor Todd Hall is with us. He's professor of psychology at, at Biola's Rosemead School of Psychology. He and his wife, Liz, have written this really terrific book that we want to recommend to you called Relational Spirituality, uh, where he blends psychology, neuroscience, theology, biblical studies all together really nicely into, a, a, I think, a new and different view of spirituality that we desperately need to hear about today. So, Todd, so grateful to have you with us, uh, and tell Liz, too, we're grateful for her contribution to this as well. So thanks for being with us. And tell us, first of all, what do you mean by the term relational spirituality? And, and is, it, is that really something new? Because I, I thought spirituality was all about a relationship to Jesus. But you're saying it's a whole lot more than that. Yes, yes. Well, first of all, thanks, Scott. It's so great to be with you and Sean. Really appreciate this opportunity. And yeah, I think in some ways... Relational spirituality is new. In some ways, it's building on a lot of research that has been growing over the past really 40, 50 years, which is what I try to piece together and and sort of integrate. Uh, but yes, I think certainly spirituality is about relationship with Jesus, relationship with with God. But there is more to it. And psychology and neuroscience, as you as you mentioned, helps us to understand how we grow and develop in relationships. So so the term relational spirituality really refers to a, a broad model or paradigm that suggests that human beings are fundamentally relational, that that's a primary um, aspect of what it means to be created in the image of God, and that the goal of sanctification is a relational goal. And so I refer to that in the book as loving presence, and that the process of how we get there is a relational process and that we grow in love for God and others through, primarily through relationships. Part of what you're reacting to in your book, uh, relational spirituality, is what might be called a rationalistic spirituality. What do we mean by that? Where did it come from? And how does this overly reductionistic rational view affect the way we relate to God? Yeah, Sean, there, there's a longstanding assumption or rationalistic approach to spirituality that basically holds if we just learn enough about God and enough about Scripture in our head, so head knowledge, that spiritual growth and maturity will automatically happen as a result of that. And I think there's a growing recognition in the church that that model is outdated and and truncated if it doesn't tell the whole story. In terms of where it comes from, uh, there's a long-standing history of that, and I trace that in chapter one. Uh, but Briefly, the Reader's Digest version is that, you know, in the early church, the pursuit of conceptual or head knowledge, whatever you want to call that, was, you know, generally speaking, pursued as an integral part of a deeper knowing of God, a deeper relational knowledge of God. And then over time, that, that became split apart. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of historical forces that led to that, but a couple of the key ones are um, the development of scholastic theology in the Middle Ages with a heavy focus on logic, and then the Enlightenment with a you know heavy focus on 
the new science that was developing, and that was imported into our sort of approach to scripture. Uh, and then the split between, you know, the liberal conservative split in the late 1800s, early 1900s led to the conservative group understandably focusing on doctrine and sort of the boundaries of doctrine. And so that led to a focus on explicit or head knowledge, which was important, but left some gaps in our understanding of the relational dimensions of, of spiritual growth. So Todd, a lot of your background in psychology has been, I think, really helpful in understanding the spiritual journey. And you've done a lot of research on the spiritual journeys of college students, uh, particularly in Christian colleges. But what's I think what's new, as I'm reading your book, is the emphasis on what the neurosciences have helped us, how they've helped us understand spirituality. How, 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 have, how has that contribution been significant in, in your own research on spirituality. Yeah, yeah. Both psychology broadly as well as neuroscience have helped us to understand that early relationships with caregivers, with emotionally significant people in our life, that those experiences are imprinted in our brain and remembered in a form of gut level or implicit memory. And those memories then guide and shape the way we experience relationships, the way we relate to others. And it does this all outside of our conscious awareness. So it's, it's very powerful. And um, we have to sort of, you know, tune into that. And it's something that gets missed a lot, I think, in the church. And, and that comes from neuroscience and psychology. You maintain that we were, quote, created to connect. What's the evidence for that? And what bearing does that have on our view of spirituality? Yeah, Sean. So there's there's a lot of evidence that um, I take a look at in chapter three in the book that were created to connect. Some of that comes from infant research. You know, prior to the 1970s, infant researchers thought that infants are born sort of non-relational and that they grow into being relational. And we've since learned that infants are incredibly relational from day one, even in utero. There's evidence that that infants um, remember implicitly again their their mother's voice, for example. Hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of research in, in the area of infant research. Probably the biggest area would be attachment uh, research, which I think I just mentioned. There's there's a whole body of research on attachment that shows that, again, the way the types of experiences that we have with early caregivers gets imprinted. We remember that, and that predicts all kinds of outcomes in every area of life. So people who experience secure attachment and internalize that, again, through this implicit memory, have better outcomes in terms of, you know, educational outcomes, social outcomes, you know, in relationships, marital outcomes, physical health, and mental health. And so back to spirituality, Sean, you know, if we're defining and thinking about spirituality as this relational, within this relational framework or relational endeavor of growing in love for God and other people, then this, this whole idea that we're created to connect has, has a huge impact. It suggests that God designed us for relationships and that we really need to kind of focus on and pay attention to this research and understanding how we grow and develop. Because it's not just, I mean, it is psychology, but it also is intrinsically part of our spirituality, how we, how we love others. Todd, I know it's been sort of a long, long-standing tradition that uh, you know, our notion of spiritual formation primarily is for our relationship to God, and that Scripture is really all we need for that. Have you gotten some resistance to your work on integrating psychology and the neurosciences into this sort of predominant view of spirituality? Yeah, I think there's some resistance, Scott. I do think it has lessened over the past, you know, 20 or 30 years, which has been encouraging 
to see. Uh, but there is some resistance still in some you know sectors of the of the church. And I think part of that comes from this typical view of spirituality that you mentioned, Scott, this more rationalistic um, view is, you know, it allows us to have a sense of control, right? Um, It presents kind of a very linear model of how we grow, and there's a sense of control. And so when you bring in this, this new view that growing in our love for God and love for others is, is kind of a messy relational process and it's not linear, that, that really can kind of shatter our sense of control. And so I think there's some understandable reasons why there's resistance there, but the hope is that we can push through that and develop this in the church. Although this does make a little more sense why Jesus paired the two great commandments together like he did. Right. You know, and that the, you know, loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and the, and the second commandment is like it. Right. You know, I think what he meant by that is it's equally integral so loving your neighbor as yourself. Right, so those, right. Those two are connected. They're all intertwined, exactly. Yeah. Now, one, one other thing that I think we've been skeptical about in the past is the place of emotions. And we've often viewed emotions as disruptive uh, or as unreliable, a uh, thing you can't trust your emotions in favor of rationality. But you you have a really a different take on that. So how—I mean, you describe it as the emotion revolution— in your book. So what do, you, what do you mean by that, and how, how do emotions fit into our understanding of spirituality? Yeah, yeah. So I think, first of all, we have to understand what emotion really is. We tend to, in the church oftentimes, think of it as, you know, just mood or something like that, and that we shouldn't, you know, that emotions as mood can just sort of take us astray. But really, emotion from a deeper perspective is the way we evaluate the meaning of events for our well-being. And it Mm. happens automatically. It's processed primarily in the right brain, very rapidly outside of our conscious awareness. And so when you look at emotion that way, what I'm trying to say in the book is that emotion reflects an underlying meaning system. So I'm not saying that you always just go with your emotions or mood. What I am saying is that emotion is the starting place for transformation. Um, that you can't bypass that. It reveals this underlying meaning system. It reveals how we how we view ourselves at this deep, implicit level and how we view God as well. And so that's the starting point for for transformation. And it's not, you know, it's an integral part of the of the growth process. Also, emotions are are very helpful. They have what we call action tendencies built in. They motivate us to take action. Um, sometimes they can be they can be off and they need to be rewired, but Generally, they, they reveal our meaning system. So what would that look like? Because if we're doing systematic, rational theology, it's pretty much easy to say, well, you got a faulty view of the Trinity. You don't understand the end times. Here's the role of the Holy Spirit. There's cognitive ways we can control and kind of fix the process. But emotions get a little bit more messy and seem to be outside of our control. So kind of practically speaking, what would it look like to try to rewire those uh, to develop spiritual health? Yeah, so that involves, you know, in a nutshell, new relational experiences. So when when a person, um, for example, has, uh, you know, let's say they they grow up with a father who's abusive or neglectful, and they have you know certain kind of experiences that wires their attachment system to expect those same experiences with other important people in their life as well as with God. And so those experiences have to be rewired through new relational experiences. So that's, that's the code, if you will, in which it operates. And so explicit knowledge or, you know, head knowledge 
helps to guide us. It helps to interpret these experiences. But the direct transformation happens through new relational experiences that that sort of challenge those you know those old painful experiences in a positive way. That, that's so interesting and helpful because one of our mutual friends, Mark Matlock, yes, some time ago just gave an example with me that he was talking about the difference between implicit and explicit knowledge. And you talk about this in the book, but the example that he gave was related to relativism, how it's believed so much by young people. We tend to say, well, it's faulty views that they have. And he says, actually, there's a connection between having broken relationships and lacking community and embracing certain things like relativism. So if we want to help someone understand truth, there's a cognitive fix and kind of a relational fix. Right. Now talk about this distinction between explicit and implicit knowledge, because I'm an apologist and we tend to focus on explicit knowledge, but oftentimes, like you say, implicit knowledge can be equally, if not more powerful in the way we relate to God and other people. Right, right. Yeah. So there's there's an author, uh, Michael Roussel, who has a phrase that um, he says, emotion is the rule, rationality is the tool. Hmm. So Emotion, again, when we think of it as the way we evaluate meaning, automatically operates outside our conscious awareness four times faster than conscious thinking. So by the time we have conscious thoughts and beliefs, they are already thoroughly informed by this deep emotion system. So you have to get to that, you know, to your point, to really have a deeper transformation. Hmm. So why is it that we spend so much of our time and energy in tempting spiritual transformation by just teaching people about it. Why don't we recognize the, this implicit knowledge uh, as being so important in the process of spiritual transformation? Yeah, it's a great question, Scott. I, I think part of it, again, goes back to the, the history you know, that we talked about of you know, there was a, a need to kind of defend doctrine understandably and, and a focus on explicit knowledge there. But I think then that led to, again, this gap in understanding the messy relational processes. And that's, so that's part of what I started to learn as I got into psychology, became a clinical psychologist, started doing therapy. And I started to see that, you know, to a person, my, my clients who've experienced, you know, painful early emotional experiences, abuse, trauma, those things always played out in their experience of God. Hmm. And I think part of the answer to that question, Scott, is that we have a thin model and understanding of, of this deep process within the church. And so many leaders in the church have not really experienced it um, and been trained in it and, and are, have difficulty seeing it. It's part of that, too, just because we're, you know, we, we're uncomfortable with messy relational things. And maybe to add to that, we, we just don't have the patience to realize that we're, we're in a long game here when it comes to spiritual trans- transformation. And especially if if those early traumatic, you know, unattached experiences need to be rewired in the brain, that's not a short-term fix. Right. Yes, that's that's a great point. It, it is. I, I think that's some of the psychological reasons why th- this is difficult in the church. Yeah, that it, it is messy. It takes a lot of patience and a lot of grace. And we, you know, understandably, naturally want we want quick fixes. I mean, so I think that, and that's part of our culture, right? I mean, this focus on on quick fixes and information transfer, and that's been kind of imported into the church. And so, oftentimes, you see, you know, in the church, uh, you know, people who are really struggling, they might go to a church leader or pastor, and pretty quickly they get to a point of 
I'm not sure what to do with this person. And then they get maybe, you know, referred out or the person leaves. So it does take a lot of patience. I think the starting point for that is just understanding, you know, this, this process that this is, a, it's a marathon. It's a long process to, to rewire someone's connection, especially if, if there's been trauma or abuse or those kinds of things. Are, are some of those experiences that somebody has trauma when they're younger, sometimes in terms of implicitly before they even recognize that there was a kind of abuse, you said it's a marathon, but in some ways, does the data show that certain people like their ceiling will just be limited a little bit in their ability to connect with people and connect with God because of those experiences? Does the data show that? And how how do we incorporate that into the way we disciple people? Yeah, I think overall, you know, so one of the transformations we've seen in in neuroscience is understanding that the you know the what's called the plasticity of the brain the brain continues to develop throughout life you know 50 years ago the view was the brain develops until maybe 25 and then it stops <laughs> but now we know the brain can continue to develop and, and regenerate and so and of course that's just sort of the the mechanism for the change in the soul right and so change is always possible but this you know this this view does suggest uh, again the idea that it's a long haul and that early experiences that are damaging, um, especially when they occur during periods where the the parts of the brain that process social and emotional information are going through a growth spurt, those do have a big impact. Um, and so it it's, you know, back to your point, Scott, it's not a it's not an easy quick fix. And we see this in, you know, in psychotherapy, um, you know, in, in my training of students doing psychotherapy. It's not a quick fix. It does take time, but it is possible to change in, you know in a deep way. I can see it, some of our listeners thinking, you know, this is a much more sophisticated view of spirituality than, you know, than I've been used to. And yet, you know, if recognizing if you have some of those traumatic things in your background, I could see some of our listeners saying, does this mean that I have to go to therapy to resolve some of these things before I can actually have a meaningful connection to God or, or really expect to grow spiritually? What, what would you say to them? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Scott. And I, I mean, I think Part of the reason I wrote this book is because I believe all of these growth processes we're talking about come from God. Mm. The source of the, the love in these processes that help people grow come from God. Sure, they may come directly from the field of psychology, but you know they're coming from spiritual formation and you know a number of different fields and disciplines now. And so that's part of what I want to do is get this out into the church. It's it's you know the psychology does not own and therapy does not own these processes. They're God's processes. And so I would say therapy, I think, can be helpful, definitely, for people like that, but I don't think it's always necessary, and that transformation can happen through relationships in any number of contexts, and that can happen in the church, and it should be happening in the church, and I think it does happen in in the church when community is being done well. Uh, So I have a question. It may go beyond your, your focus, but I've noticed in the past two to three years a number of theologies of the body by Protestants come on the scene in a way that used to just be talked about by Catholics. So a lot of Protestants had this rationalistic, purely intellectual approach, and there seems to be a slight waking up that says, wait a minute, we are embodied creatures, and relationships have an intellectual component, but we are present, and there's affection, and there's touch. Has this relational spirituality been more present in the Catholic Church than the Protestant Church? Is this kind of, is your book a part of a larger waking up that you're seeing 
within the Protestant church and or beyond? Yeah, I think in some ways it has been more present in the Catholic Church, and we see that in the spiritual formation movement, right? That that has a you know long history in the Catholic Church and has been you know sort of brought into the Protestant Church in more more recent times. And there's definitely an embodied component hmm. to that and, and a psychological component. Um, so, yeah, I think that's bringing some some good resources uh, to the table that are we are embodied beings. We have a soul, I think, or we are a soul, we, but we are embodied uh, embodied beings and understanding how relationships impact us and how the brain works and all those kinds of things helps us understand spiritual growth. So Todd, let's say that you know, a local church in the area reads your book and, and calls you in as a consultant. And the, the pastor, in essence, says in the leadership, say, you know, we're just, we're just not seeing the kind of spiritual depth that we want to see in the people that we're serving. You know, we've seen, we got a lot of our people that seem, they're just kind of going through the motions. Help, help us take our church deeper spiritually. What kind of advice would you have for a, for a church who asked for that based on what you've found? Yeah, I would say, you know, when we look at sort of the typical model of church, right, we, the, the main service with the preaching is sort of the main component. There is worship, you know, and again, both are both are very important. But in a sense, that is a reflection of this rationalistic, you know, paradigm we've talked about. That's that's kind of the big focus. And so I think there needs to be a shift to where there's an equal focus on relationships and smaller groups where there's sustained relationships over time. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is a um, anthropologist named Robin Dunbar who talks about maximum social network. Um, is about 150 people where we can have meaningful relationships. And he talks about tiers of relationships. And we talk about that in the book that we need to be intentional about, yes, we need teaching, but we need to focus on helping people integrate God's truth into our hearts, right? To feel those ideas. So that's one of the ways I talk about it is feeling an idea. It needs to become experiential. And stories help us Mm. to do that. When we tell our own story, when we hear people's stories, right? It's taking God's truth and ideas, and it's helping to integrate those into our hearts. And we also need smaller, smaller groups, uh, whether that's, you know, house church, Sunday school group, where there's sustained relationships over time. And, you know, what we see oftentimes are classes that are topical, and there's a place for that, and those, those can be great. But we also need groups where there's sustained relationships, right? And I've heard from some churches that, well, people don't want to sign up for, you know, a class where they're going to be stuck with, you know, certain people they may not like for, you know, a long period of time. And so it makes it easy to just, I'll just go to this class and this class, and if I don't like this person, I'm just going to, you know, leave. So we, so I think part of it is the, the mindset and the culture to, you know, among the leaders to understand that this is important. We need to foster ongoing relationships where we're dealing with the messy relational, you know, processes in some core small groups, you know, as well as the larger group. So I guess I have to give up the idea that I'd love to be a part of a small group if I can choose the people who I'm with. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Todd, one of the things we hear so much in the church is people will say things like, all I need is Jesus. And that sounds so spiritual. And yet it's not biblical. The Bible says, carry one another's burdens, right. encourage one another, confess your sins to one another, worship with one another. Part of your book is trying to say that spirituality is not an individual sport, right? Right? It's a team sport. What do you mean by that? And what would it look like to take that seriously, to have more of a communal sense of spiritual development? 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great analogy, Sean. I think it, it is a team sport. And so I think part of that is recognizing that we, you know, we're a family, the family of God, and that we all are responsible to build the community that we want to be a part of and that God wants to shine his love and light, you know, to the world. So there, there needs to be a commitment to that. And, and I think there needs to be sort of a longstanding mutuality, you know, so it's not mutuality in the short run, you know, where there's this tit for tat, you know, give and take, but really trying to give and support others in the community when others are struggling and, and need help and recognize and, and hope that they will be there for me when, when I need help. And, and sometimes for some people that involves reaching out, you know, sometimes it's hard to receive help. Mm. And so I think, again, back to the culture, we need to foster a culture where this is viewed as important and essential. Um, and, and there's this mutual commitment to, to each other's growth and to everybody using their gifts, you know, in, in the church. So that's one step, I think. Mm. Todd, one final question. As you look across the, the landscape of the Protestant church, what, what are you encouraged about as you see the, this, this mo- movement towards spiritual formation? You know, and, and, what, and what cautions would you give to the church based on some of the things that you've found? Yeah, I, I am encouraged that there, there is a movement over the past you know, 20 plus years of bringing spiritual formation into you know, the Protestant church. And I think um, you know, it's taken a while for the Protestant church and evangelicalism to sort of wrestle with that and what does that mean and is this biblical and how do we do this? And I think there's a growing you know, shift or turn recognizing that this can be approached in a very biblical way. And, and I think a lot of the psychology is helping us to see that there's some very important you know, aspects to this. So I, I, I'm encouraged by that movement. Um, you know, the Institute for Spiritual Formation here at Biola is an example of that and really one of the leading programs uh, in that area. There's others all over the country. So I think that's encouraging. There's, I think, more openness to uh, psychology in general and the role it can play in understanding spiritual growth over the past, you know, 20, 30 years. Uh, and also more openness to the importance of mental health, which is, we all know, is, is a you know, huge issue. We've seen uh, an increase in loneliness, in social isolation, uh, in mental health issues like depression, anxiety, even before the pandemic, right? Loneliness was being declared an epidemic in this country and in the UK. Yeah. And it's just gotten worse, and especially with the young adult mm. uh, age group. And I think, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that was sort of an off-limits topic in the church, right? To talk about mental health and depression, anxiety, and even more severe things like schizophrenia or bipolar. And I think there's a growing awareness that this is important, that more people are struggling, and we need to address this. Well, Todd, this has been super insightful. I appreciate you mentioning our Institute for Spiritual Formation here. For our listeners, if this discussion has captured your interest, I want to I want to recommend Todd's book, Relational Spirituality. But also, if you're interested in pursuing this at a more academic level, at a more uh, a degree or a certificate level, our Talbot's Institute for Spiritual Formation has all sorts of courses and programs available to you. 
uh, and to check out uh, biola.edu slash Talbot uh, in order to do that. That's a, th- th- that'd be a really significant next step for folks who really want to pursue this much more seriously. So, Todd, we're really grateful, grateful for your work, and t- tell your wife Liz, too, grateful for her contribution to this Will as do. well. Uh, and thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. really appreciate it. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including what we just mentioned as part of our Institute for Spiritual Formation. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more about those. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Sean and me and Dr. Todd Hall uh, about his book, Relational Spirituality, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.